Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another fascinating episode of The Flow Line. We've got a good one in store today, a lot of which I wasn't familiar with. But again, my co-host here, Matt Offenbacher, came up with a good topic. But first and foremost, Matt, how are you doing? Are you bearing the heat or are you just a puddle of slop like most people walking around Houston right now? It's tough. Like, and I think the older you get, the more you realize, <laughs> like, I'm supposed to have done some stuff in my wife's car recently. And I just like, even at night, I'm just like, no. You're right. You know, I kept running and that sort of thing. But since I've been traveling, I've been very intentional about running. Like I was in Pennsylvania last week and it was like, I'm definitely going running before I get on the airplane because <laughs> then I can avoid Houston. It's brutal out there, but this is yeah. summer in Texas. So what else is new? It is. No, it's definitely a hot summer, a little hotter than normal. I remember the first year I came, it was 2011. I want to say we had, it was like a record year for not rainfall. So it was yeah, just like- 2010 and 2011 were the worst. Yeah. So I don't remember if like temperature wise, it's the same, worse or less, but I just remember, I was like, it doesn't ever rain here. This is insane. And then come to find out it was, it was just an odd year, a couple of years, but nonetheless, it's definitely hot out there. And hopefully folks, especially on the rig, you know, it's, I've heard a few times here and there that I even had a money engineer on one of the accounts that I look after, uh, had to go to the hospital. And unfortunately the gentleman was okay, but he just was getting lightheaded, started getting some, you know, short of breathing and all the rest of it. And so just, you know, just to be cautious, kind of brought him to the hospital and yeah, he, was just dehydrated and just got overheated. So, uh, you know, by the time this gets released, hopefully we're not in the hundreds and maybe getting more towards the nineties for the rest of the year, or at least, you know, moving forward for a bit. But uh, for the folks out there, yeah, it's, they can't stress it enough. It's hot. And so make sure you're hydrated and staying healthy and happy. And that's, that's my little rant, my safety rant for today, Matt. Good one. Time yeah, yeah. 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 No, for sure. So anyway, folks, I think it's an important topic and just to kind of give some color behind it before we're diving into it, because laying a little bit of groundwork as to what it is. And so obviously when you're drilling with any type of fluid, there's a base fluid. And a lot of times there's a lot of effort to recover base oil. The most obvious one is if you're drilling with an oil-based mud, an invert emulsion, the base fluid's going to be diesel. And there's a lot of value inside that system. And while some of it may be junk, like solids, the diesel in itself has a lot of value, not only for building more fluid, but the dollar value associated with that. And so, Matt, why is a discussion around base oil recovery, especially as oil prices keep rising, extremely important for us to consider and, and just have a better understanding of? Well, you know, we've covered a few of these topics individually, but I think sort of big picture, one, we all want to save money, right? And sometimes we go through these efforts. And I think especially like these technologies, some of them are new, but some of them have been around for a while, or they've Everybody gets excited and they go away. In the same way, we've had to talk about cheap base oils and how they can actually cost more to run. These technologies are sort of exciting as you hope to save some money, but you got to look at the whole picture. And so I thought, okay, let's try and paint that. I don't know, might not be a whole picture, but most of it or as much as we can to just sort of illustrate some things to think about because price of oil's going up. I think we all sort of thought this was going to happen. Who knows how high it'll go, but. Every dollar per barrel means more price in diesel. And the more we yeah. have people coming to us asking, 
how can I make it cheaper? So, right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting, right? Just because we're on the mud side doesn't mean the price of oil doesn't dictate the economics of a well. You know, obviously, if you've been in the mud business, you understand that the higher oil and diesel goes, typically your oil based mud prices are going to be higher. And so, yeah, there's always certain, I guess, initiatives put into place to help recover some things just to help with the economics. So with that being said, Matt, talking about recovering this expensive fluid that we use every single day, what would be some of the things that we really need to consider before we just start pointing and shooting at what type of baseball recovery method we're going to choose? You know, I'll start out with sort of like, where are you going to do it? Because most of the things we're going to talk about here are pretty equipment intensive, which means you need space for it. And granted, you know, in West Texas, your backyard could probably be pretty sizable. That's something to think about. Another thing is just like power requirements and zoning. Are you going to do this at an active rig site? Are you going to do this somewhere else where maybe you're going to need more generator power because some of these things can be energy intensive? They maybe need to be coded for offshore use, for example, or, you know, wherever you're going to be. And another thing to think about is treatment rates. So it may be that I could recover a bunch of oil if I have an infinite amount of time, but does the amount of time it takes to get what I want back justify having the equipment out there and the day rates and all that kind of thing? So that can be a big deal. You know, the last two are sort of related, you know, that I put on my list. One is consistency. Can I get consistent quality of the oil Mm -hmm. or is it, you know, well, some batches look like this and some batches look like this because we've found that in some of these situations, we'll test something and it looks good. And then the next second batch, you can barely make a mud out of it. It's very expensive. It requires extra products, all these other things. And so like, we don't want any gotchas. Right, um, right. And then the last part is like base oil, you know, if it was used in mud or it's probably got solids in it. And so do you have residual solids? Because the other thing we see is we see recovered base oil from some of these methods that has very fine solids in it. So when you try and use it as your dilution, all you're doing is adding ultra-fine colloids to your mud, which traditionally we try and keep out. You're diluting by volume, but your mud quality is going down. So big picture, those are all sort of things that like give me a little bit of pause whenever we talk about some of these techniques. A lot of that is so important. And oftentimes, not on purpose, but unless you've done it before or have used say a reclaimed diesel, you wouldn't really think of it. And the one thing is a consistency. Perfect example. We have, there was a customer who was, you know, because it was less expensive than diesel, they were like, Hey, we want to use this reclaimed diesel. We're going to use it next pad. And it was like, Whoa, pump the brakes. Like, do you even know what this stuff looks like? And I'm like, yeah, it's cheap and it's diesel. Like why not use it? And so to that point, I suggested we do some lab testing, which they were totally cool with, you know, it's like, Oh, let's just make sure it's compatible. Well, come to find out the solids content in there was like pretty high. And I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but when we ran the lab testing and we we beat it up a little bit, it made our rheologies just super high. And not that it wasn't manageable, but the cost was being offset by having to treat it back relative to the cost savings on diesel. And so really it didn't make sense. But on a per gallon basis, if you're just looking at it on paper, it was like, oh yeah, we have to use this. Like look at all the savings. So we had to little do our due diligence to make sure that what they thought they were saving was going to be true. And so once you kind of look at it through a different lens and do a little more testing, it was like, aha, okay, this might not be something that we can use. And so what we did is we used it in batches a little bit here and there, but they ultimately ended up going away from it just because the pain of, or I guess the pain, but just the, I guess, logistics and having to manage it and this, that, and the other, uh, it just made sense to go back to what we were doing before. So anyway, it was a good point on the consistency side. So you always double check. 
Yeah. And that's been one of the hardest things for us is we'll qualify something and then the other load shows up and it's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it was definitely all over the place. It wasn't like a consistent 2,000 barrels, but nonetheless, something to really think about. So Matt, what are some of the likely applications are there out there? Like, especially, you know, unconventionals call it because obviously there's offshore too, but you'll see in the Permian or an area where there's lots of rigs in a central location. How would this type of technology be applied? Well, you basically described it, I think. I mean, one, let's say you're tank locked in a mud plant, right? You need space. So it may be worth, given the cost of disposal and everything, you bring one of these units, whatever they may be, and we'll break out a few of them, and you're actually able to recover some of the base oil, send the other stuff to disposal, and free up tank space. And that's been overwhelmingly the number of the applications I've been involved in were were tank locked. You know, they can rig up in a space by the tank farm. It's a controlled facility. It's not a rig where there's going to be a bunch of stuff moving around. And so it was like a very clear, straightforward place to rig up and do the job, as opposed to a rig where you're always sort of adapting to the way the rig's set up, right? Like things are changing. Oh, we moved over to the next well on the pad. Like just, it's a much more temporary setup. So anyways, I think that, and then, you know, there have been a few areas where let's say an operator has a lot of consolidated acreage and they say, okay, we're going to send all of our materials to this one central location for processing. This might be more common in areas where disposal is very expensive and more restricted. And so you'd have this processing facility that's within X number of miles of a bunch of rigs, say five or six. They all send their cuttings or their whole mud or what have you as waste. And it gets processed and you bring the base oil back and the other waste materials are handled as how they're handled. Right? Right. So a couple of options there. It's less likely to just show up to the rig site on a regular active well because there's just not the volume relative to the cost and the personnel and like all these other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, never say never, but it just doesn't happen as frequently. I will say that like, for example, offshore on a drill ship, for example, some of them have employed some of these technologies because they can discharge cuttings now or they can do other things that solve the disposal question. And so, yes, it's worth, even though I'm only drilling one well at a time, having this drill ship with this special equipment on board. Those are your most likely applications. How frequent they are, I think, is maybe perhaps what challenges the business case. But I think we should kind of run through, we give the folks some ideas of what the options are, how that kind of work. Maybe they can get a better picture of what that all means. Yeah, because there's several methods, which I think is interesting. There's a couple here that I could have maybe thought of, but just off the top of my head, wouldn't have added it to the list. So let's start off with the first one here, chemical flocculation, you know, with whole mud. For those who drilled with water-based mud, you're probably familiar with the term, but let's go ahead on describing it for an oil-based mud application. So the immediate question, whenever we do a mud school and we talk about dewatering, someone raises their hand and says, can you dewater oil-based mud? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Right? Because if we could flocculate those solids, they'd separate out more readily. And the answer Beautiful. is kind of. But the problem is you have to water wet everything to get it to flocculate. And you've got to give it you know, some sort of charge so that you can get those polymers to get everything to flocculate. And so I've actually worked on one of these units and I've seen them work. But you know, normally you have a skid out there, you take the fluid, you're going to apply a very powerful wetting agent and then a very strong flocculant, mix all that together and centrifuge it. And you'll be able to strip out most of the solids. And when you do that, you tend to get pretty good phase separation as well, which means you can kind of skim, you know, the oil portion off. 
the one thing I've noticed on a couple of these technologies now is like they seem to work better like when it's hot outside or when everything's warm. And so like they'll show some really good case history from like the Middle East. And then mm. if you try and do it in northern Pennsylvania or something, they might not be as like flashbang results. And the hard part too here is like emulsions are complicated. So when you're trying to treat this stuff and dial in these treatments to balance the way that the state of the oil-based mud as it is, you can't promise the efficiency you're going to get. You're going to say, this is what we typically see, and then hopefully replicate that or end up on the high end of the bell curve there. Right. I mean, is this something that you've come across like in the Permian or anything that like as of lately, I mean, to me, I've never had experience in doing any of this, but it just seems like it's not very common. I mean, is it going on and I'm just not aware of it or? No, I mean, it it comes and goes. I think there's a lot of sort of a patent landmine, like the folks that patented it. Now, look, this is pure speculation. I have no idea. Like they're patented processes. And I think there's a bit of overhead with that. It requires a skid and a centrifuge. You're basically got a container with your equipment and then some centrifuges and it's a lot of equipment. I've seen it in use a few times, but I haven't seen it recently. And I gotcha. just don't know if the appetite is there. But then again, my world is unconventionals right now. So it could be booming in West Africa and we just wouldn't <laughs> be any the wiser. Well, I feel like if it was something that was cost effective, it would like everyone and their dog would be doing it. You know what I mean? Because it's like there's a lot of benefit to being able to do it if the economics makes sense. But anyway. Well, you bring up a good point as well is think about more expensive base oils as well, right? Like if we're able to use diesel, we're going to be the cheapest big value, right? So if this is, you know, some really expensive, heavily environmentally friendly restricted base oil that costs five or six bucks a gallon somewhere on the other side of the world, that's probably going to take this equipment first because the returns are much more clear. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Next on the list here is when we have our good friend, Mr. Gravity, that comes into play. Matt, let's talk about flotation. So flotation is mostly, this is some of these waste management companies from a cuttings treatment perspective. So what happens is they've got a big pit, they've got cuttings that, you know, they dump all their cuttings into it. So it's a big centralized line pit, proved disposal techniques, all that. But they ultimately end up washing the cuttings. And what happens is the oil is going to float because it's lightest, right? Mm -hmm. So there's enough residual oil on these cuttings and other wastes that go to these facilities that you could actually skim the oil off. So it's as simple as I've got a pile of cuttings. I mean, think about it in a, you know, an open top, like you can see a little layer of oil if you let it sit for long enough. Well, think about a really big open top because it's an approved disposal site with a huge open area you could skim some of that oil off and recover from it. So this is something that I've seen done. I think there's a few folks, you know, if you Google them, some of the waste handling companies will, you know, talk about their facilities being able to do this. I always wrestle with any of these times you rely on phase separation. It's really tempting to get greedy, right? So I'm pulling oil off the top. Am I pulling just oil or am I trying to get a few extra drops and now I've got some water contamination or some of those residual fine solids and kind of nasty interface layer? And so this one, it's you're not altering the oil at all. So if you get it back, it's probably fine, but don't get greedy. That's sort <laughs> of my uh, thoughts on that one. Yeah. No, it's something that a lot of people were doing with direct emulsion systems instead of you know shipping them back. And they're like, there's a lot of value in the diesel that's in there. And what if we just let it sit there? 
can we just, will it eventually separate and get the diesel just so we can skim the diesel off the top? And so that method, you know, from my experience, hasn't really been one on the old base or invert emulsion side, but actually rather the direct emulsion, which, yeah, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into play there. So we don't have to get in the weeds there. But again, it is a method. But to your point, it's like, it'd be very tough to just know exactly what you're getting. I'm sure there's a little art to it too. And people have probably figured out a decent way how to do it. But anyway, it's certainly a method out there. Next one on the list is electrophoresis. Did yeah. I get it this time? I know that word got brought up years ago and I was like electrophoresis. Anyway, electrophoresis, Matt, what is that? We did an episode on this a while ago, if anybody wants to go into greater detail. And that's where Justin refined his pronunciation of the concept. <laughs> Basically, if you run electrical current through whole mud, for example, the solids will want to stick to each other and start falling out. They'll build a, you know, a charge density eventually. Think of an ES meter, and we've sort of described how this works because I love electrical stability so much. But what <laughs> happens with an ES meter is you start running current through it, and the solids sort of start forming a bridge across the probe, and then droplets sort of conduct electricity on top of that. But like oil wetting breaks down, and you're able to like this stuff drops out. You know, so you can kind of try and draw some solids out, or if you go full bore, you could probably get all the phases to more or less separate out. You can skim oil off the top. The challenge here, of course, is time relative to the amount of volume you can treat. This has been done. We've played around with it in our lab. There's a couple of other companies. I think most of the folks who got really excited about this have looked a lot more at like slop water treatment, where mm. easier to separate. It's pretty clear, you know, more oil per unit volume, all that good stuff. So this technology is out there. You can listen to the other episode a little bit more about it, but it's a way to recover base oil. I don't have a ton of experience with it other than some pilot testing that we've had done. This one was working great with the direct emulsion stuff too. So yeah. that's a technology that's out there. We acknowledge it exists. Perfect. Thermal desorption. Is that right? Desorption? Yes. Okay. All right. So this is a pretty straightforward one because what do I do? It's kind of an indirect heat furnace. So you have a couple of screws. They start carrying cuttings, especially, but you can do this with some mud too through the furnace. And guess what? Stuff evaporates. And so mm. you're able to condense the oil, separate it out, and you can reuse it. Some of these will even, they can actually burn the base oil that it recovers as the energy source to run it. So they don't mm. necessarily need an external power system if it's a poor boy unit. But most of my encounters with these have been. I know it's a very long story, but there was a project a while ago in Algeria where they basically wanted to dig up where in the 70s or whatever, they drilled a ton of diesel-based mud cuttings. And you know they drilled a bunch of wells with diesel mud, dumped all, buried all the cuttings on site. But it was such a mess that from a cleanup perspective, they actually came back, dug up those cuttings and put them through the thermal desorption unit, one, to recover those units back to where they were supposed to be or recover the soil to a better condition but you could save some of the diesel. Okay. Sometimes it's sort of a cleanup method. When I was in Azerbaijan, this is what a third party did it. But when the mud plant got locked up, our expensive base oil was recovered using this. So a couple of concerns, controlling the heat. You can overheat the stuff and you can actually, I've been told, I haven't dealt with the nitty gritty of it, but you know, crack some of those longer chain hydrocarbons or fractional separate where you, you don't get all the good stuff you want. And then the other part is, it is a furnace, right? We're using heat and a fair amount of it, which you're never going to see a thermal desorption unit offshore, I don't imagine. Gotcha. Okay. Well, moving on to hammer mill. What is that? So a hammer mill, as much as 
It sounds exciting to say the name and maybe a little bit metal and edgy, right? A hammer is kind of like they're a bunch of arms. Think of like a wagon wheel, but without the wheel part, just the spokes and the center, right? Mm. Now imagine having a bunch of those and enclosing in a drum and spinning it really, really fast and putting stuff in there. So we had a podcast on this with a TWMA guy way back when. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that this stuff rotates so fast that it generates frictional heat and that causes the evaporation. So there's no flame. There's nothing like that. It's just this thing moving really fast. And guess what? You can separate the oil, solids, and water. And these things have been used. I know some have been mounted on drill ships where they're able to get the cuttings so free of oil that they can dump the cuttings overboard in wow. you know, restricted areas, which saves a ton on transportation and that sort of thing. But hammer mills are, I would say, newer to the oil field relative to like thermal desorption is ancient. Hammer mills are newer. And so you're seeing them being used in some of those higher spec type applications, but you can recover oil and use it for dilution there as well. Right. I've heard of a few units being placed on land, but again, it doesn't like sweat the Permian or any one of their major basins. So, but nonetheless, like to your point, they do work from what I understand. And if anyone's more interested in in actual the mechanics and how it's applied, the TWMA gentleman there did a great job of describing it and, you know, talking about fluids management and the rest of it. The next one on the list here, Matt, is vacuum distillation. Yes. So this one is actually fairly recently, there was a video promoting this. You actually sent me the link, but I came yeah. across on LinkedIn and it was like, okay, that's kind of cool. And the video actually, like, I know that mud plant. Like what was funny is I know that mud plant. And in fact, we'd use chemical flocculation in the past at that mud plant when it got tank locked. Uh-huh. The cool thing about vacuum distillation is it doesn't require heat to get the oil to evaporate. And think about it. What is the boiling point of water? 212F, 100C if you're Canadian. I was going to say 100, um, but that was Canadian. I was like, I don't remember. Anyway, yes. But what if you're in Colorado? A lot more. Well, it's actually less. To boil? Yeah, the boiling point. Because you have lower atmospheric pressure, right? Ah, okay. Yep. So it might be more like 200 degrees F. I mean, that's not a lot, right? But like, and in Celsius, that's like, what, two degrees? Nothing. Anyways. <laughs> okay. But the idea here is what if I just draw a vacuum? So instead of being at really high altitude, I just put everything under a vacuum to the point where its boiling point is very, very low, like almost ambient conditions. And the first thing that's going to boil oh. off is oil, right? I see. You know, the vapor pressure. So basically, you're going to be able to evaporate and condense the base oil before anything else. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Which is a pretty cool idea. It looks like it requires a few containers, like a lot of these things do. But I like that it doesn't require heat. There's some cool things going for it. So it'll be interesting to see if that some case histories in the future of using that and, and, you know, learning a bit more about it. So there's probably others, but those are the ones I have on my list. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there, right? Like the vacuum distillation one besides from before I sent you that link, because uh, I thought it was interesting and you obviously had been familiar with it, but there's clearly a bunch, which none of them have really taken storm. And so that's just it's kind of the overarching theme for me as we wrap it up is it's like, why don't we hear more about these and why haven't these been deployed at scale? Because if you were to just run some back of the envelope math on how much diesel if you could effectively reclaim it, the value in all of that, call it everything that we've drilled or stuff that's not good anymore to drill with, where you have to figure out like, what the heck would we do with this stuff? The number is probably pretty astronomical, but it's like, how do we get there? You know? Yeah. Well, I can only guess, but I think one 
our oil field is so erratic, right? Yeah. And we can't figure out who we want to be. And I think that sort of, we get focused on something that's going to solve a real problem and then a downturn hits and everybody forgets about it. And anybody who knew anything about it is gone or they moved on to something else because even if they were able to keep their position, priorities change, right? And then we get back to it in the same way that we have these conversations a lot more when oil's expensive than when it's cheap, you know? Yeah. Those are sort of the things like that's the first thing. And then I think the other part is we sort of mentioned being centralized where you have a lot of material to process and therefore a lot of material to recover versus rig up, rig down, extra personnel, blah, blah, blah. Like the problem is, you know, when I'm no longer tank locked, I no longer need you. Yeah. You know, you need a continuous drilling operation with, I don't know what the multiple is, but let's say you've got five or six rigs within X miles. So the trucking and everything that's coming back. And so, I think these disposal facilities have the best chance at doing a lot of this stuff because everybody's already sending their stuff there, right? Right, right. And that's why that's most of the oils we encounter, but they're disposal folks. They're not mud people. And so they're just hoping to sell somebody's garbage, right? Like, hey, nobody wanted this. I can monetize it. You know, then I think just the cost of base oil changing all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I think that there's an element there where we just need to realize that Diesel's going to get expensive and then people are going to worry about it less. When things are expensive, people get creative, but they forget about it the minute prices normalize. Yeah. I like how you started off. We have a hard time figuring out who we want to be. That's <laughs> I've never really heard it put that way. But yeah, it's like companies will commit to something and then things will change, which totally changes their business focus to which then, yeah, a lot of things get sort of sidelined until it's important again, which goes not only for this type of technology, but for a lot of other ones too. But either way, it's, I feel like in time, you know, someone will come up with something, whether they're forced to or not. And I'm curious if anyone out there has worked with any bit of baseball recovery stuff here on land, maybe somewhere else in the world, if you're on land and you've got a bunch of rigs running around, maybe there's one we hadn't mentioned. But nonetheless, I think it's a good conversation and one that I hopefully people will chime in because I think having a solution out there could be very helpful to the mud business and, you know, obviously to all the operators out there too. Yeah. So. All right, folks. Well, if that's it, Matt, any closing last words? I know we kind of wrapped it up and you said it best, but anything else before we let everyone back to the job? I have no wise words. All right. Well, with that being said, everyone, really appreciate the support. And if you could review, subscribe, share it with a buddy. And if you're interested in more content, we've got our YouTube channel. Follow us on LinkedIn. Our marketing team continues to put out good information, whether it's educational, just stuff that we're doing highlighting the culture that we have and some of the initiatives that we got going on. So please do us a favor and follow us on LinkedIn. You can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at aesflues.com. And with that being said, take care, everyone. See you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.